Long Reads is supported by Haymarket Books. One title you might enjoy is Keywords for Capitalism, Power, Society, Politics by John Patrick Leary. Historian Greg Grandin has described it as a much-needed handbook to help those who want to challenge capital to avoid falling into its semantic sand traps. You can find Keywords for Capitalism at haymarketbooks.org. Readers in the US and the UK Receive free shipping on orders over $25 or £20. Hello, you're very welcome to Long Reads, a Jacobin podcast where we look in depth at political topics and thinkers. My name is Daniel Finn. I'm the features editor here at Jacobin, and I'll be presenting the show. We're listening to Fischia Il Vento, one of the songs that came out of the Italian resistance to Nazi occupation during the Second World War. The man who wrote it was killed in battle soon afterwards. Italy's liberation was meant to have consigned fascism to history. But eight decades later, Italy has a prime minister from the far-right tradition. Giorgia Maloney's party is directly descended from the die-hard supporters of Benito Mussolini, who reorganised after the war. Our guest today is David Broder, David is Europe editor for Jacobin and the author of several books about Italian politics and history. His latest work, Mussolini's Grandchildren, has just been published by Pluto Press. This is the first part of a two-part interview. Today we'll be looking at Italy's far right from the fall of Mussolini until the point when Giorgio Maloney entered the political stage. You can hear the second part of David's interview about Maloney's rise to power in our next episode. What was the political character of the MSI and what role did it play in Italian politics during the First Republic? Since coming to power, Giorgio Meloni has often recast the history of this party. So she openly claims that her party is a continuation of the MSI, but seeks to kind of prettify its image and give a more conciliatory idea of its role in post-war Italian democracy. So claiming that, in fact, the MSI helped build Italian democracy, that it ferried, uh, the word she used, it ferried millions of people into Italian democracy. So many people after 1945 who felt they were on the defeating side, that they were excluded from the anti-fascist republic, the MSI actually helped bring them into democracy, helped pacify post-war Italy. I think this is a uh, extremely idealized image of what the MSI was, and it also misrepresents its political culture. Often when they're accused of associations with fascism, Fratelli d'Italia leaders, and Meloni in particular, will kind of claim, well, fascism, that was the regime that ended in 1945. But the MSI, in post-war Italy, uh, was a party that explicitly claimed that fascism hadn't died with the regime. In fact, that fascism wasn't just dictatorship or anti-Semitism and such like, but a political culture, 
a set of ideas and values, as uh, Adriano uh, Romualdi put it, the son of one of the main leads of the MSI. It was a permanent part of European culture. So the MSI was founded in 1946 by officials from the Salò Republic, the Italian Social Republic, the final hurrah of fascism uh, and the regime led by Mussolini during the German occupation and the sort of most Nazi collaborationist wing of fascism that fought to the end even once military defeat was clear. Much of the uh, Italian military establishment, the monarchy, but parts of the fascist uh, party itself had ditched Mussolini in summer 1943 and thrown in their lot with the Allies. The MSI, founded at the end of 1946, which emerged from some of the former cadres of the uh, Salò Republic, it actually banned from membership anyone who hadn't fought with Mussolini right to the end, right till April 1945. The MSI, right from the outset, was a party that stood in elections and differentiated itself from other groups who sought to continue some sort of armed struggle resistance to the new republic. And it, right from the outset, actually tried to form alliances with other right-wing forces, with non-fascist elements, as I say in the book, even in 1947, they helped elect a Christian Democratic mayor of Rome. And it was a party that, in the words of Augusto de Messanich, one of its main leaders in its early phase, promised neither to renege on the regime nor seek to restore it. Uh, so they kind of admitted that they wouldn't be able to, to restore or they wouldn't be able to reverse their defeat. Also, quite quickly, by 1951, they supported Italian NATO membership. So even though they'd been at war with the United States uh, up till 1945, uh, they kind of admitted that their role or the best they could hope for, was to be a kind of junior ally of the United States. They couldn't really hope, again, that Italy would become a world power. So I think right from the outset, they kind of accept that they have to play electoral politics, although they have a very ambiguous relationship with democracy, often claiming, for example, that democracy was really just the rule of parties. So they kind of play a bit on the ambiguity of, you know, are they against democracy as such? or just the way that the Republic was ordered, its dominance by anti-fascist parties and so on. And then I think we can draw a kind of distinction made by a historian Giuseppe Parlato between, on the one hand, the kind of party identity of the MSI, which is very much rooted in the experience of the Salon Republic, the idea that they went down to a noble defeat, that while many other fascists had sort of jumped ship or abandoned their ideas, that they actually stood for the kind of lost cause, that they had not uh, reneged, that they'd not given, you know, they'd remained true to themselves. So it has, a, in its kind of historic identity, is very much that of a continuity of fascism. But at the same time, right from the outset, right from the end of the 1940s, they realised they have to adapt, they have to change in their uh, alliances, and basically through very many changes, what they recognize they have to do is to make anti-communism their main cause. So throughout the whole history of the MSI, its main opponent and target of its hatred is another opposition party, the Italian Communist Party. So if we say the MSI was often the kind of fourth or fifth largest party in Italian democracy, 
The second biggest party was the communists. The communists, of course, had up to 2 million members. And the MSI sees itself as a kind of rear guard against the prospect of a communist takeover in Italy. And uh, its mobilization is uh, largely on that basis. What was the relationship between the political organizations of the far right and the groups that were carrying out terrorist attacks during the years of lead in the 1960s and 70s? Well, even uh, right after the war, there were some small organizations, small conspiracies that mounted terrorist attacks against the New Republic. Uh, So in fact, even some of the main leaders of the MSI were in a group called the uh, Far Fasci di Azione Rivoluzionaria, in 1946, uh, which did things like they attacked the US embassy, they attacked some communist party offices and so on. But some of them did some jail time and they quickly realized that this wasn't you know, wasn't a useful uh, approach. For the first decade or so, they actually sought rather more to uh, ingratiate themselves with the right wing of Christian democracy. And in 1960, there was very briefly a Christian Democrat government that that relied on MSI support in Parliament. So this is the so-called strategy of insertion, trying to rehabilitate the MSI by making anti-communist alliances with the main party of government, Christian Democrats. This event in 1960 caused an enormous backlash, also because of the holding of the MSI Congress in, in Genoa, a city known for its role in the resistance. You get this strike wave, riots, these demonstrations that are violently repressed by police and which makes this government's continuation untenable. So the Christian Democrats realize that they can't make this kind of pact with the MSI. And this condemns the MSI to a long period outside of government. So 1945 isn't a moment where fascism suddenly disappears from the face of history and is sort of condemned forever by everyone. Uh, The MSI is a minority force uh, but which can sort of hope to get back into government. And it's really actually the events of 1960 that show that it just uh, can't be relied on as a as a government partner, where you know, there's too much mobilisation against it for it to be a real option for government. This failure of the strategy of insertion, the attempt to bring the party into government, also strongly helps foster the idea of Another approach, which is indeed to try and overthrow the republic rather than integrate the party into it. So there's a grouping within the party, within the MSI, called Ordine Nuovo Study Centre, led by Pino Rauti. And it's a kind of internal faction that kind of leaves the party at the the end of the 1950s, rejoins in 1969. But it kind of splits between, on the one hand, a sort of formally... MSI allied group which accepts taking part in elections and so on and then the so-called Ordine Nuovo political movement which in fact is a terrorist group which is involved in the so-called strategy of tension which plants bombs in order to create the specter of communist violence which will legitimize some sort of authoritarian intervention to replace uh, Italian democracy. If some of the journals. Also, if you look at the uh, famous conference at the uh, Hotel uh, Parco dei Principi in Rome in 1965, we see that, in fact, there isn't a total separation between those who are doing sort of politics uh, and those who are organizing terrorism. 
you could say, the kind of different faces uh, of one same political family and in which there's kind of contacts between and sort of shared ideas of what they're trying to do in the sense that um, there's this idea of the kind of anti-communist revolutionary war. So they're learning also from experiences like the OAS, the secret army organization in the Algerian war, where military officers carry out false flag attacks uh, in order to try and keep the war going, in order to try and avoid the French withdrawal from Algeria. So again, fighting the communists in Italy, as they call it, uh, this is the approach of the strategy of tension. So I think you know, the MSI as a party did not pursue a terrorist strategy. However, many of its leading figures were involved in uh, planning attacks, also in some of the uh, kind of coup plots with more uh, sort of military officials and so on. And also we see a certain kind of use of MSI spaces, uh, you know, it's kind of branches and section offices and so on as basically spaces where the sort of neo-fascist grassroots or sort of more militant groups uh, hang out where there's a kind of community of militants. So there's certainly conflicts in this milieu. There are certainly those who accuse the MSI of selling out, of going soft on the Republic and so on. But even top leaders, even the very top leaders of the MSI, even Giorgio Almirante, were involved in covering up terrorist attacks, destroying evidence, this kind of thing. There's also a certain change over time in the sense that kind of by the very end of the 1970s, Almirante starts to more uh, strongly distance himself from the um, sort of terrorist groups. Um, often the MSI sort of angrily protests that they are falsely smeared by association with these groups. But in reality, as we now know, even into the 1980s, people like Almirante had quite close contact with, with famous terrorists like Stefano della Chiaia and uh, were involved in uh, in helping terrorists to uh, to evade justice and so on. Uh, so I think, yeah, the MSI as a party didn't pursue a terrorist strategy, but it provided useful cover to those of its comrades who did. The most notorious atrocity of that period was the Bologna train station bombing in August 1980. Euronews carried this report on the 40th anniversary of the attack. Italian politicians joined families of the victims to commemorate the 40th anniversary of the Bologna massacre, in which 85 people were murdered and 200 injured. The ceremony was attended by the country's president, Sergio Mattarella, who restated the need for full truth and justice. On the 2nd of August in 1980, a powerful explosion ripped apart the waiting room at Bologna's central railway station. It was the deadliest attack in Italy since the end of World War II. Although there have been convictions, it's still uncertain who was behind the attack. It took place at a time of political turmoil in Italy and wider Europe. Terrorism from the far right and far left was common between the 1960s and early 80s. Authorities eventually concluded the militant fascist group Armed Revolutionary Nuclei, led by 21-year-old Francesca Mambro, were behind the attack along with another far-right group, Terza Posizioni. But Mambro insists on her innocence to this day, and many believe the attack was a result of collusion between state officials, far-right terrorists and other agents, enacting what was known as the strategy of tension to keep communists out of power. 
How did the MSI transform itself in the 1990s and how was it brought in from the cold to form part of Silvio Berlusconi's right-wing alliance? Silvio Berlusconi was doubtless very important. Uh, In 2019, he gave a speech where he said, I constitutionalised the fascists. It was me who legitimised them. So we might think it's rather unkind of Berlusconi to call his own political allies, long-term election uh, coalition partners, fascists. He didn't call them post or neo-fascists, just fascists. There's an element of truth to what he said, which is when in the uh, 1992 the uh, old party system collapsed, so dissolution of the Communist Party, Christian Democrats and Socialists felled by the Bribesville corruption scandal. Berlusconi enters the electoral arena, beginning of 1994, saying he's going to rally all moderates in order to defend Italy against the left, which are, in his words, just communists in new clothes. And he says that he's going to welcome into his electoral alliance both the Lega and the MSI. The relations between Lega and MSI at first are uh, are quite poor. But Berlusconi says these people are just moderate right-wingers. There's no reason to fear them. In fact, already in December 1993, he had said that he would support the MSI against the Green uh, candidate Francesco Rutelli in the Rome mayoral election. So even before the MSI changed its name, uh, as it ultimately would, to Alianza Nazionale, before it started to call itself post-fascist, it was already welcomed into Berlusconi's uh, electoral bloc. However, while Berlusconi's role was certainly very important, it relied on other more general factors that had come first. And I think to understand that, there's really two elements one of which is the corruption scandal I just mentioned. So the MSI, since 1960, had never had any chance of entering national government. And this also kind of perversely saved it from being involved in the kind of webs of official corruption that brought down the Christian Democrats and Socialists who had long been in government. So the MSI in the early 90s could boast that it was the party of La Gente, ordinary people and not la tangente, bribes. Uh, So they played a lot on this card of kind of honesty, law and order. Uh, This was also a time, of course, of uh, mafia uh, massacres, murders of judges and magistrates and so on. So the MSI played very strongly this card of, you know, we're the only party that survived the collapse of the post-war so-called First Republic uh, we were honest. We stayed true to ourselves. The president of the Republic, Francesco Cusiga, had also echoed much of its language about, you know, need to get rid of the partyocracy, these kind of illegitimate mass organizations that are hoovering up resources, handing out favors to their mates, this kind of stuff. So the MSI certainly benefits from the kind of anti-political climate that uh, that feeds. But more broadly, and this is the second aspect, this is also a time of the end of the Cold War, the collapse of the Soviet Union and the long-hated Communist Party, of the proclaimed end of history. And the MSI finds this a useful moment to reinvent itself because it says, you know, for decades, we were an oppressed minority in this so-called anti-fascist republic. 
These were decades of social violence where even just being right wing could get you killed. But now Italy can be pacified. We can move on to a new stage kind of past uh, the conflicts of the past. So in a way, this draws on a very liberal and indeed neoliberal triumphalist idea, right? Sort of the end of the communist threat, the end of the ideological polarization. Now all Italians can unite. But this is really a a self-absolution. It's saying, you know, the post-war republic was built on the anti-fascist identity of the state, but now none of that matters anymore. We can just relate to each other as free individuals. So at the Fuji Congress in 1995, something of a kind of clause four moment for the MSI, it sort of says, ours is the tradition of the right before, during and after the 1920s. So they kind of blend their sort of fascist roots into a sort of generic right wing tradition, start to say, you know, like all Italians, we are post fascists. Uh, So it's a moment in which they have a lot of opportunity to reinvent themselves. And as I say, Berlusconi certainly helps them along. But they're also benefiting from a lot of the other uh, sort of opposition to them falling away. As he brought the far right into the political mainstream, Silvio Berlusconi relied on pure kitsch to sell Forza Italia to the voters. This was the party's campaign song in 1994, with a video that segued between children in buggies and an aerial shot at the Roman Colosseum. In one of his election broadcasts, Berlusconi defined Forza Italia as the party for Italians who work and Italians who produce. produce contro quella che spreca, Italia che risparmia contro quella che ruba. He promised to spearhead a new Italian miracle in reference to the boom of the 1950s and 60s. Un nuovo miracolo italiano. How important have the debates around the historical memory of fascism and the Second World War been for the entry of the far right into the Italian political mainstream? The historian Renzo De Felice, a biographer of Mussolini and the leading uh, historian of fascism in Italy in the 1970s, he had given an interview to Corriere della Sera in 1987 in which he said that this anti-fascist identity of the post-war Italian state Uh, what some have called a kind of uh, anti-fascist religion, that it was bound to die away with the passing of time. So as De Felice put it, the generation who had lived through fascism would communicate its memory to their own children. But then those who had children then born in the the post-war republic, they wouldn't continue to pass on the memory. So there'd be a kind of twilight of anti-fascism. He combined this really with a call for the the Republic to kind of get over uh, the past. But I think it's not just a natural process of the direct witnesses dying away. After all, we could make a comparison with Germany and particularly West Germany, where there wasn't an anti-fascist sort of state ideology, as it were, after World War II. But then after 1989, German identity became much more premised on the sort of learning from and critique of the Nazi past. 
If I think after 1989, Italy and Germany are headed in opposite directions in this sense. One reason is that the second largest party, the communists, who were certainly also an important uh, in culture and academia generally, in large part ceased to defend their own record. And many former communists reinvented themselves as quite staunch anti-communists as they turned into social democrats or in most cases, in fact, liberals. Uh, So many long-standing tropes of far-right memory culture began to become widely accepted across the political spectrum. So an example I I think is really important to this change of the way Italians talk about World War II is this issue of the foibe. So foibe are are literally a a geological phenomenon. Uh, They're sinkholes in the ground, and they're very common in the area which used to be the border between Italy and Yugoslavia. And it's long been said, and it's a dominant theme of post-war neo-fascist memory culture, the so-called genocide against Italians by Yugoslav partisans after uh, the end of World War II. Uh, So uh, most historians working on this material uh, would say that a couple of thousand, maybe a few thousand Italians uh, were killed after May 8th, 1945. In the 1990s, this ceased to be a kind of the memory or obsession of far-right groups or just a local issue in the borderland area uh, and became an issue of sort of national redress. So you have all these ex-communists, for example, people like President Giorgio Napolitano, who's uh, president uh, in the the late 2000s, saying, you know, out of ideological blindness, we... Communists refused to recognize what the Yugoslav partisans had done to our fellow Italians, uh, the Slavic annexationist fury that had led them to um, ethnic cleansing. So I don't think any serious historians of this issue uh, would recognize that Yugoslav partisans conducted ethnic cleansing against Italians. In fact, the phrase ethnic cleansing is itself an invention of the 1990s and is drawn from the uh, Yugoslav wars happening at the time. Uh, of course, the fact that it happened in you know, Yugoslavia uh, helps to, uh, to create the kind of moral imaginary to associate the two events, but the story is wildly overblown. But what it allows for and what uh, Fratelli d'Italia seeks to do and what the right the sort of non-fascist right has also sought to do is to create a kind of equivalence between the crimes on all sides in World War II. So to push back against anti-fascist memory culture by saying, well, anti-fascists and fascists both have crimes. So we see this uh, today, um, certainly in the last few years, Matteo Savini, the Lega leader, has often said, well, you know, the children who died in the Feuerwehr so-called ethnically cleansed by Yugoslav partisans and the children who died at Auschwitz, uh, there are no Serie A and Serie B victims. So referring to the country's first two football leagues. Uh, In reality, we know of only two children who were killed uh, in these events at the end of World War II. And the comparison with Auschwitz is uh, offensive, even I would say a form of Holocaust denial. The attempt to claim that 
fascist and anti-fascist victims, you know, Holocaust victims and victims of Yugoslav partisans, that they're equal, also elides the whole issue of the fact that Italy invaded Yugoslavia and not the other way around. But I think what needs emphasizing is how dominant and hegemonic and successful this rewriting of history is. It's not just a product of the far right. Uh, it's pushed by people like, uh, for example, Bruno Vespa, a presenter of one of the uh, most important talk shows in Italy, a sort of long-time journalist, almost a kind of Andrew Neil-type figure, although pr- probably a bit less right-wing coded. People like uh, Giampaolo Panza, who's, again, a, a sort of pundit who wrote these sort of semi-fictional historical uh, works, kind of like uh, historical novels. And what they're all perpetuating in the 1990s is this idea Italians were victims too, but the left didn't want to talk about it. So after the fall of the Communist Party in the uh, sort of so-called post-ideological climate, what we in fact have is a kind of zombie anti-communism that seeks to revisit World War II and say, well, actually, the resistance, they committed lots of crimes too. So what we see in Italy, I think, is also comparable to the the, uh, the memory culture of countries like Hungary, Poland, Lithuania, where it's as if the momentum behind the right and their various enablers is as if Italy was subject to this long communist hegemony, and now finally they can tell the untold stories of what really happened. But they do so in a way which which sort of self is sort of self absolution of Italian nationalism and in fact even of fascism itself, because it basically claims Italy was just caught between Nazis and communists, and ordinary Italian patriots were the victims. So I think that this kind of trivialization of the uh, stakes of World War II, the destruction of uh, the anti-fascist memory culture, even by many people coming from the left, has indeed both normalized the post-fascist tradition, helped to prettify the tradition of the MSI, the people who had kept the flame alive after World War II, and also it creates a kind of victim narrative of Italian identity, the claim that Italians have been subject to ethnic cleansing and genocide, then by Tito and Stalin, and now by uh, George Soros, Great Replacement Theory, and so on. In March 1944, the Nazis murdered 335 Italian prisoners in a site on the outskirts of Rome. It was an act of revenge, ordered directly by Adolf Hitler, after a partisan attack on the SS in the Italian capital. The following clip comes from a feature film about the massacre, starring Richard Burton as the officer who organised the killing, Herbert Kapler. This is the operation site, a series of abandoned man-made caves about three and a half kilometres southwest of the Via Tasso, where we are now, and at the Via Ardiatina, which is there. The tunnels are made of limestone, When sealed, they will make a natural death chamber and the limestone will accelerate the decomposition of the remains. The tunnels are already being mined and will be blown shut on completion of the operation. Kapler was jailed in Italy after the war, although he escaped from prison shortly before his death in 1978. During the 1990s, there was a campaign by the right-wing press in Italy to brand the partisans who attacked the SS as a terrorist group. A Roman prosecutor even tried to bring charges against the surviving partisans. 
It was a grim example of the attempt to equate fascism with anti-fascism. Did the post-fascist turn of the 1990s provoke opposition from within the far-right milieu? So the most important figure in the post-fascist turn, indeed openly using the word post-fascist, is Gianfranco Fini. So Fini was the kind of uh, dauphin or protégé of uh, Giorgio Almirante, the main historic leader. But he's also someone who is from a later generation. So, of course, someone who grew up politically kind of in the 1970s rather than a a veteran of the uh, Nazi collaboration. And uh, in the 1990s, he performed something of a kind of Tony Blair uh, act because he says, well, the old ideological divides are over. We need to to enter uh, the modern era. Uh, He does so with a lot of... um, contradiction and prevarication. He actually praises Mussolini quite consistently into the 1990s. But the idea really uh, of his is to turn the MSI, as was, into something a bit like the US Republican Party. Probably actually a more accurate example would be to turn it into the Spanish Partido Popular. So a party with roots in the the regime, uh, of course, in Franco's regime, uh, but which becomes a kind of normal conservative party. And Fini goes through lots of symbolic moments designed to show that this shift is happening. So the Fuji Congress in 1995, they sort of say, well, the resistance was necessary in 1945 to restore democracy, but afterwards anti-fascism was an oppressive ideology. So there's always this kind of there's always this kind of self-legitimization of the MSI, like, well, we had to keep doing our fascist salutes. We had to uphold the old cause because there were communists who wanted to repress them. And in the post-fascist self-narrative, we always get this idea, which is that 1989 was the real kind of liberation that finally allowed democracy to uh, flourish across Europe. So the important thing with this is, so Fini does things like, you know, he goes to Israel, he says that the Holocaust and everything that led to it were the absolute evil, uh, comments widely interpreted as him saying that fascism was the absolute evil, though it's not really what he said. And then ultimately, in the late 2000s, he started to say that, well, we have anti-fascist values too. So ultimately, Feeney totally broke with the party. In 2010, they split ways. So the very leader who had brought the party into so-called post-fascism and so on, he and them parted ways entirely. So in his memoir uh, called Il Ventenio, uh, The Twenty Years, which in fact is a reference to the regime period, uh, he kind of says, well, ultimately I'm not sure that my members ever really believed what I was doing or if they just thought it was like clever tactics that we needed to brush up our image, but really fundamentally they hadn't changed. There's lots of polling, including by a political scientist called Piero Ignazzi, which shows that throughout these changes, MSI members, as had been, continued to have a basically positive image of the regime and justified it in the name of anti-communism. So the changes were quite skin deep. And today we see Fratelli d'Italia actually doesn't accept the changes that Fini made. So for example, they claim that Feeney destroyed the right, that he was a tool or a plaything of high finance and this kind of thing. But even in the 1990s, apart from those who just kind of went along with it insincerely, there were some splits, some of which were 
in fact, I, th I think we could even say they were kind of useful to Feeney in terms of giving the impression that he really was changing the party. So in 1995, when they changed from MSI to Alianza Nazionale, and they declared the party post-fascist, Pino Rauti uh, led a split, which became a party called Fiamma Tricolore, which claimed that fascism is not right-wing, but rather is revolutionary and radical, uh, and it performed very poorly in elections. Uh, at points it did have, Rauti was in fact elected a member of the European Parliament, uh, but I think it was useful for Fini that the most sort of openly fascist and nostalgic wing of the party broke away in 1995. Uh, at other points, there were also splits. So, for example, Alessandra Mussolini, uh, the granddaughter, she actually only joined the MSI in 1992. But she quit in 2003 because of Fini's visit to Israel and what he said there. So, in Israel, Feeney said everything that led to the Holocaust was the absolute evil. This was reported by news agencies in Italy as Feeney saying fascism is the absolute evil. So Mussolini, uh, Alessandro Mussolini said, well, I can't accept this. I'm going to quit. Uh, and then there were other other figures like, for example, uh, uh, Francesco Storace, who split away to form. A, a, so, so Mussolini split away in 2003 to form a party called Azione Sociale. And in several election campaigns in the 2000s, there were these kind of more openly neo-fascist groups who stood separately from Alianza Nazionale. Although at times they were also actually in Berlusconi's electoral coalition, despite being openly fascist. I mean, there were indeed organizational splits. There's also the creation of groups uh, who claim to uphold a more militant uh, and indeed revolutionary idea of political action. So if we think of groups like Casa Pound or uh, Forza Nuova, they also claim to draw on the tradition of the MSI, but it might be said at an earlier stage in its development. So they identify less as right-wing, uh, but rather claim to uphold the kind of syncretic and, and uh, kind of third-positionist ideas of uh, fascism. But an important part of the answer to the question, nonetheless, is that even the most mainstream, even the sort of reform led by Fini, or even if we look at Fratelli d'Italia in government today, which is often said to be kind of mainstreaming and moderating and so on, I think, in fact, their approach throughout the Fini era and even with Melanie today is very uh, composite and able to speak to lots of different groups at once. I think they're able to kind of uh, draw the party into a conservative space while also making plenty of concessions and offering plenty of red meat, even for the most intransigently identitarian militants. Uh, so, for example, Milani, even today, uh, in fact, even as prime minister, frequently praises the record of the MSI of Giorgio Amirante, uh, claims that anti-fascism was an ideology which crushed and oppressed her comrades. And we see ministers in the government uh, speaking of ideas like great replacement theory, claiming that the Italian ethnicity is under threat and so on. So I kind of resist the idea that they've sort of dropped their fascist baggage and gone mainstream. What they're doing is playing a much more delicate game of keeping their membership on side, uh, asserting their own talking points, resisting and pushing back against what they see as anti-fascist hegemony. So I think, you know, as I said earlier, 
if Feeney in his memoir doubted whether his membership really believed what he was literally saying and thought like maybe it was a kind of tactical game. Uh, I think that kind of impression is, is very useful to the party, that it says many contradictory things and sends out lots of opposite messages. But overall, and for most of its base, does give the impression that it is moving in the right direction and succeeding in changing Italian politics. Many thanks to David Broder for that introduction to Italy's far right. You can learn more about the subject from his book Mussolini's Grandchildren, which is out now from Pluto Press. This was the first part of a two-part interview. You can listen to the second part in our next episode. Sventolando la rossa sua bandiera, vi 